So as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be looking at two people who failed greatly in their duties. And I, I want to take a moment to just emphasize this a little bit more. They failed greatly in their duties. Now, you may remember if you were here last year, towards the summertime, I started a series called Unqualified. And in the series of Unqualified, which many of you have come up to me even since that, since, since a year ago to tell me how much that series meant to you, we really looked looked at the lives of people who either failed by God's standards or at the very least failed by their peers' standards, who God was able to use despite that failure to bring about good. Well, today we're looking at the lives of two people who failed miserably, but the outcome of their lives was so much different than what we talked about at least a year ago. So I think you're going to find this very interesting. So in order to do that, let's go ahead and be in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we're going to be starting with verse 12 today, and we'll conclude this chapter through verse 36 by the end of today's message. So it starts off in 1 Samuel 2.12 saying, Eli's sons were scoundrels. And they had no regard for who? The Lord. So Eli's sons were scoundrels, and they had no regard for the Lord. Eli, I know you're in the room today. We're not talking about your kids. You know, I, I called Eli and Hannah up this past week, and I said, hey, you missed church. I did a whole story on your life, on Eli and Hannah. And uh, I don't even, you know, I was telling Hannah over the phone because she's German, so she pronounces it Hannah, and I was telling her over the phone, I don't even know what I probably said last week if I was saying Hannah or Hannah. I've gotten so used to saying Hannah that I don't say Hannah very much anymore, but we were doing your story nonetheless. So Eli, if you remember from last week's message, is who? Eli is the priest that's serving in the Lord's temple. So he's the one that engages with Hannah, and Hannah is the one that gives birth to Samuel, and Samuel goes under Eli's care. Now, Eli has two boys that are serving in ministry alongside Eli in the temple. So it's safe to assume that these kids and Eli himself are most likely Levites. So it says in Scripture here, though, that Eli's sons were scoundrels who had no regard for the Lord. The word that's used in the Hebrew there for scoundrels is bel-el-yal-el. And it roughly means evil, naughty, ungodly men, wicked. So Scripture really wants to emphasize the fact that these, these two boys weren't just failures. You know, oftentimes we think about failure as something that we've done wrong, right? There's many moments in our lives, throughout the days, throughout the weeks, where we make mistakes and we say that we failed. Sometimes we feel the weight of that failure more strongly than others, and some days we could think of ourselves only as failures. Well, what Scripture is trying to communicate here is more than just failure. These boys have a commitment 
a, a, a heart that just desires wickedness. Because you see, oftentimes when you and I are failing, there's a sense of regret, right? There's a sense of sorrow that is attached with our failures. And I think this is what really causes a separation between the story that we told last year of unqualified and the lives of these two boys or these two men that we're looking at today. And that is that they had a continued desire to do wrong and evil. And this is why Scripture says that they had no regard for the Lord. Their hearts were turned against God. Now let's keep on reading through verse 17. We'll start with 13. Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, now this is, this is the important part here, this is, this is their moral failure here, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first, and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. So verse 13 and 14 are really trying to explain what the priest's rights were. So last week I talked about how it was the regular rhythm of Israelite or Hebrew people to go to temples in order to worship the Lord, and it was normal within their culture to make sacrifices to God. And oftentimes these sacrifices would be in the atonement of their sins. In, in some ways it was a setup for the ultimate sacrifice that we would see in Christ. Well, it was the rites of the priests, the priests specifically within the Levite, tribe to serve in this function of being in priestly duties over the people. Now, in order for the priests to be able to provide for their own needs, they were given a portion of this sacrifice or this portion of this burnt offering to the Lord. And as it was being explained in verses 13 and 14, what the priests would have the right to do is be able to take their fork in and have a portion of that meat that was being offered up to God and enjoy that from themselves. Now, this is in some ways how they were provided for. The ministry of this temple existed in a way that it provided for these priests' needs. But what were these priests doing? They were taking the law of the Lord, they were taking this intended system that was supposed to offer in some ways this 
opportunity for the people to give an offering to God, and they were abusing it. You see, it was within these priests' right to take a portion of that offering, but the way in which they were doing it was completely wrong. And it abused the system that God had set up in that time. Now, we've seen this within our regular culture, right? Where maybe somebody is appointed to a certain position, Maybe it's a teacher, maybe it's a business person, maybe it's a religious leader, a pastor, someone, and they're given a certain privilege or right or duty that is afforded to them, and what do they do with it? They swing to the extreme as far as they can, and oftentimes maybe even cross a line into an area that they should not engage in, and therefore from doing that, abuse their office. It would be the equivalent of the offering plates coming around in this church, me going back into the corner out there and taking out a handful for myself and putting it into my pocket. If I did that in this church, that would be wrong. And you guys here would be rightly upset if any person, whether it be the treasurer in the church or someone who has the responsibility to safeguard the resources that are given to this church, if any one of us in leadership did that today, you guys would be rightly upset because that would be moral failure on the part of our leadership. Or, for example, if someone in this leadership that we have here in this church abused their authority in order to hurt the faith of another individual, that also would be wrong. And as sad as it is, we've all heard of stories that are not just financial in nature, right? Of people within their their appointed roles that have abused their power. Maybe it's from sexual misconduct, maybe it's financial, maybe it's just coercing people to do what they want them to do. This was the lives of these two young men. This is how they were living out their life. They weren't just failing because life is hard and they messed up, they were willfully acting in abuse against the Lord. You know, I remember years ago when I got my second job in ministry. I was working for a church, and I was really excited about this opportunity because, you see, this church had an internship program or a residency program where they were taking in um, potential candidates all across the U.S., And I felt particularly fortunate because most of the residents that they would hire in came from a a particular school that they favored. 
either it was Taylor University or Indiana Wesleyan University, and they really liked the students from those schools, so they would oftentimes pluck graduates from those schools. Well, in my own situation, I couldn't afford at the time to go to a Christian university, so I was just going to a secular university, a a state university in Florida, and I had the opportunity to become a resident in this program, and I felt even more privileged because I was one of the youngest residents in this whole entire program because I hadn't even graduated yet from university, but they decided to take me on early. And I felt so privileged by this, and I remember showing up in Georgia to just just pure excitement at the fact that I was going to full-time dedicate myself to the work in ministry of the church. And I just remember thinking to myself and calling my parents and calling my friends in complete excitement that I get to rub shoulders with so many men and women of God who were doing great things at this church that was busting out of the seams. Well, all of this happened in around 2009 into 2010, and within my first three months there, I saw person after person commit gross moral failure. In my first month there, I was tasked with trying to plan a youth event across all five campuses of the church. And we're going to have around 300 kids show up, middle schoolers show up for this event. So you can imagine the stress I was under to try to coordinate 300 middle schoolers for an event that was going to be outside of the church with multiple buses and other things. And I was, I was tasked with doing this, and I remember speaking to the gentleman who was in charge of all the campus ministries over youth. And I was jumping into this project, and he had or told me that he reserved a whole bunch of different places in order for us to go and bust the kids to. But things were just not adding up in the situation, and he would take me to where he said that he reserved this place, and I would just have this off feeling like, this didn't make sense. This area doesn't hold this, these many kids. Something's off here. But being many years younger and being as green as I was, I just went along with it. Well, within that month, I found out that this particular individual had been stealing from the church. He was purchasing large-sum gift cards for himself with the church's credit card and making it seem like he was using those gift cards for different things within the church, and the sum total of this ended up being well into the thousands. Turned out he hadn't reserved anything. And then to make matters worse, he was falsely reporting baptism numbers, discipleship numbers. Everything was a facade in this man's world. And for whatever reason, he decided to allow this lie to continue to snowball and snowball and snowball. I remember just feeling shocked having been in close proximity with this person, trying to work with this person and realizing that I was one of the individuals that was also lied to. That's my first month or two there. 
The following month, we find out that the worship leader who had come back from a sabbatical and who was recently divorced at the church was trying to walk alongside both of these couples or these people to be able to love them through this pain that they were going through, that the reason why they were divorced ended up coming out, that the worship leader, this woman, was having an adulterous relationship with one of the other band members at the church. And they hadn't stopped in that relationship, and that was still continuing on. And then all of a sudden, the church just literally lost its lead female singer in that moment. And with a church with over 12,000 people, that's a big deal. And then if matters weren't worse, one of my colleagues at the church who ran the tech division for the church, so he was responsible for all the technology that would go on in the church, including the website, we find out that he had been sexually assaulting one of the students in my middle school ministry. And it was just felt like, like dominoes were being knocked down. And I just remember being terrified in that moment, terrified, not because I was witness, not so much because I was witnessing moral failure, I was angry, don't get me wrong, especially with this gentleman that he had a two-month-old newborn baby and decided to engage in that activity with a minor and commit pedophilia and just, I won't even go further than that. I was so angry at that. But I was also so terrified for myself. Not because I wanted to do any one of those things, but because I started to realize that being in ministry doesn't make you immune to anything. In fact, it oftentimes makes you more vulnerable to the enemy's attacks, more vulnerable to situations that can create problems in your life, and that if anything, people in ministry or in leadership in general need to be even more diligent with the responsibilities and the privileges that they've been given. And I was terrified because at that time I was only 21, 22 years old, and I felt like to, in, in order for me to be, I didn't even know how to do that. And I was praying prayers, Lord, protect me. Lord, keep me pure. Lord, prevent this from happening in my life. Because I realized that greater men and women than me have fallen. And you see, a big part about today's message is not just looking and in, in being upset and joining in on heaping gr- grief at these two young men, but realizing that greater men and women than you and I have fallen. People who have been trusted to lead well, who have a reputation of doing that, who for one reason or another set their hearts in a wicked path, and allow themselves to go into a bad direction. Philippians 2.12 
reminds us of this importance when it says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but, not much, but uh, now much more in my absence, continue to work out your what? Your salvation, and then read this with me, with fear and trembling. You know, I was having a conversation with an individual the last few weeks talking about this, talking about how interesting it is within Scripture that we kind of see these two things in tension, right? We, we read verses in Scripture that remind us that nothing can pluck us out of the Father's hand, but and then we kind of also see in tension these verses that says we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So which is it? Am I eternally secure in the Lord, or, or can, I, can I lose my salvation? Well, I don't know if there's a perfect answer to, to that question, but I think in some ways, at the very least, we are to live in a tension of mystery there. And I know that's not a very Baptist thing to say, <laughs> but I'm not really Baptist anymore, so <laughs> I can say that. <laughs> but the reality is, is at the very least, wherever you fall on that spectrum, you need to take great care and caution over your own life, over your faith. And that leads me to the main point of today's message. And that is, is that your faith matters. Your faith matters. And your faith doesn't just matter in your own life. It does. And God wants you to take great care for the things that you do, the ways that you live. Because if you're not careful, then what could happen? You can go in the wrong direction. You can allow yourself to be, in some ways, polluted by an area of sin in your life that you're not allowing the Lord to have mastery over, or you're not allowing yourself to have mastery over, and that can create in you a very wicked part of your life. And you need to be careful for that. But you see, your faith doesn't just matter for yourself. Your faith also matters for the other people around you. You know, this past week at the elders meeting, I was asked to lead a devotional. And I thought to myself, what would be a good devotional for us to talk about? So I went to uh, an author that I enjoy named Henry Nowen. And some of you may know Henry Nowen. He's an interesting gentleman that wrote much about spiritual formation and spent the late years of his life working with men and women who were mentally handicapped. Um, but Henry Nowen, talking about your faith, or talking about your spiritual journey, says this, your journey is made not just for yourself, but all who belong to the body. I'll read that one more time. Your journey is made not just for yourself, but for all who belong to the body. 
You see, what Henry Nouwen is trying to say here is realize this, that your faith isn't just about you. It's not just about whether you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. That is, that is the wrong way to think about salvation. You see, salvation is so much more than just eternal destiny. Yes, that is a portion of it, but the reality of your faith is it's about whose you want to be. I see, I want to be the Lord's. And in addition to that, I want to be the kind of person that influences those that are in my life to also want and desire the Lord's the Lord. Why? Because I believe that the Lord is the author of all things that are good. I believe that the Lord is the author of justice, of peace, of hope, of ultimate forgiveness in this world. So I want to live a life that causes people to come into contact with that, that through my life someone is benefited. You see, I hate to say it, but those three people that I had mentioned earlier from my story in life, they all lived in a way that not only wounded their own faith, but did what? Wounded the lives of many others. Some more tragic than others, but that is the reality. And I'm not just talking about it within extremes. Yes, the higher you are in leadership or the more responsibility you have, the decisions that you make can have a rippling effect that can be much stronger. But the truth is, is that even the small choices of our lives that we make, the little things that we compromise on, have a power have a potential to wound and to harm people. And look, I don't want you guys to live with complete anxiety over this. Because the truth is, is that many of us are going to fail. But the perspective that we must maintain is one that I've spoken on many times before. And that is a heart to fail forward. Meaning that we are going to consistently strive towards God. We're going to strive towards what Christ calls us to, and even in the moments that we might experience failure, we're going to get back up. It might be that somebody in this church helps you get back up. It might be that you pray to the Lord, help me get back up. But we are committed with getting back up and continuing to pursue our God. Amen? Your faith matters, and your faith has an impact on those around you. Don't be mistaken by that. You have an impact on the people around you. And a huge portion of your life is meant to be exactly that. If you ever wonder why God still has you here, it's not just for yourself. It's for those that God has placed in your life to influence, to love on, to pray for, to witness to, to lend a hearing ear towards, to speak into their lives, to father, to mother, to whatever it might be. 
but to give an impact. Eli's kids failed in this area greatly. And you see, the thing is, is it didn't just end there. I wish it did. But in verse 22, we learn this. It says, Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel. Because you see, people would pour into Shiloh from different regions. So their abuse wasn't just local to that city. It was really with anybody from Israel that would be coming in. And listen to this. It goes on further to talk about how their behavior was. And it says this, and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Well, if you didn't know that, there would be women that would be outside of the the tent of meeting. Now, this was a spiritual position of sorts. So not only were they disregarding the temple offering, but they were corrupting the lives of those who were relegated to these holy positions. It was the most extreme form of abuse that you can imagine. They were abusing every single layer of their lives that they were responsible for, that they were asked to steward. They had a damaging effect in their sin. And it reveals that their character was set up against the Lord's. And let's continue now with verse 23. It says this, So he said to them, speaking of Eli, said to him, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people. I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Here you have another great theological debate. Well, did God just damn them to destruction? No, I don't think so at all. I mean, we've learned repeatedly from this story that they just did not care. They did not care. Their hearts were already hard against the Lord. But what's really tragic about this story is, what was Eli doing? Why did it take Eli so long to be able to speak into his son's lives? I mean, think about it. They would have been under his stewardship. And he didn't, find, he didn't finally speak up until when? Until the news was getting around. Until maybe, you could think of it this way, until the reputation was being put in danger. And that's when Eli finally speaks up and finally confronts his sons. And what Eli has to say of his kids is 100% true. He gives good advice to them. He tells them to stop and to realize that if you are in some ways mediating on behalf of all these people that are coming to you to help them in their relationships with God, well, who's going to mediate for you if you're totally disrespecting that office? But Eli's sons are so set in their wicked ways that they don't even hear. 
and the Lord sets up a plan to end this behavior in this whole entire family. And it is harsh, and it is swift judgment that is brought on this whole entire family. And it's a sad story that honestly does not end very well. It doesn't end well for Eli, and it especially doesn't end well for his kids and his kids' kids. It's a bad story. But this, at the very least, is a cautionary tale for each and every single one of us here. That our, your faith matters, and we need to be careful with how we are living out our faith. You know, one of the good things that has come about within the last 10 years, especially within ministry training, is they talk a lot about boundaries. And they've offered boundary training. I've even taken boundary training here at Peace, but I've taken boundary training at every church that I've been to. And the boundary training is basically setting up rules for your life that will hopefully help you succeed. So to give you an example of this, let's say you're somebody that deals with alcohol abuse, right? And this isn't the training that I got, but I'm just trying to give an example here. Well, do you think it's a wise thing for someone who deals with alcohol addiction to go to a bar? Probably not. It's probably not a wise thing for them to keep alcohol in their home or to put themselves in situations where they may be offered a drink and there might not be accountability there. So what is that individual, what should that individual do? They should structure their lives in such a way that they minimize temptation. The reality is, is temptation always exists and it oftentimes finds a way to be able to come into your life. But we should not, for ourselves, create our own forms of temptation if we can help it, right? There's moments where it's out of our control and we just need to trust and believe that God will give us the strength to be able to overcome that as he reminds us in Scripture. But we should not, for ourselves, set up situations that we know we will be vulnerable to. So, for instance, one of the things that I did with a youth pastor is I decided that if I was going to meet with a student or if I was going to have a student drive in my car, that I was going to at the very least have another adult with me or make sure that the car had multiple people in it so that there were forms of accountability so that it would not be their word against mine or there would not be a weird situation that could occur. So that would be just one example. Another example was, is as a youth pastor especially, I made sure to not answer any text messages that were past a certain hour of the day because I felt like it was inappropriate for me to talk to a student, especially if it was a girl student, even if it was on Facebook and it was past 8 o'clock. It just didn't feel right. So I avoided that. There's other things that I've done too and I still try to practice. I don't like it when congregants give me money. Not because I'm tempted to take that money, but rather I like to make sure that they know the money went from me to where it needed to go. So if you, you might, may have noticed this already with me, that if someone tries to hand me money, I, I say, hang on, why don't you wait a second, and then I'll grab somebody. I'll grab Barb or somebody else, and I'll say, Barb, this person would like to give this. Those are just little things that I've done in my life in order to make sure, even, even though I don't feel tempted in those areas in any way, 
at least in those areas, to make sure that those boundaries stay strong in my life. What boundaries are you setting up for your own life to protect you from falling in sin? Do you have an issue with the internet? Well, maybe you should reconsider what kind of phone you buy yourself. What kind of things you allow to have yourself access to? Do you struggle with certain kinds of programming on television? And I'm not just talking about poor language or gratuitous scenes. I'm talking about even programming that causes your mind to go into the wrong direction. How are you protecting yourself? Do you have somebody in your life that can even maybe even serve as accountability to you? Someone to encourage you in your faith. What boundaries are you setting up? And then know this, that don't trust the boundaries because ultimately the boundaries are a tool, but they do not prevent bad behavior. Most people who fail, especially in leadership, had certain rules, but they trusted the rules more than they trusted their Savior. We need to ultimately trust our Savior, but we need to care very much about the way that we are living. Amen? I know this is not an easy message. It's not as as, let's say, riveting as a story that we like to hear, like when we get to David and Goliath and all these other amazing feats in the Bible, but this is an important story, and I did not want to pass over it, because your faith matters. It matters for yourself, and it matters for the other people around you. And church, I just want to remind you of this. That God is our ultimate mediator. Eli was right. Who's going to mediate for you if you're sinning against God? Well, the good news is, is that there's somebody that came into this world that said, I can do that. Jesus. That was his mission. That was his message that he would serve as a bridge between us and God. Because, you see, sin separates us from God. But the beauty of the gospel message is that Jesus makes a way for that separation to be crossed, for us to be able to be bridged back to our God in connection with him. And I want to encourage you now today that if this message has brought up something within you that you realize is maybe a sin in your life or something that you've been hurt by from somebody else who has abused their responsibility over you, I want to remind you that God is your mediator, that He cares for you deeply in whatever situation you are going through in life and that you could trust that he is there for you whether it is to deal with the sin that you are struggling with and wanting to overcome or whether it is the pain that has been inflicted to you because of someone else's sin that they have spread into your life. So remember this well.
that your faith matters, but that God is also there to be, to be there for you in whatever situations you may find yourself in. Let's pray.